Everybody. Welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. I'm going to just make a quick announcement uh, of our um, activity code, our CME activity code for the folks who are um, watching from far away. So the code today is 25X as in xylophone, S as in SAM. And I'll do it one more time. 25X as in xylophone, S as in SAM. <laughs> Extra small, I guess. I don't know what that size is, but. Um, and with that, I'm, I'm happy to uh, welcome Mark Krieger today to uh, introduce the speaker. Uh, Dr. Krieger is the director of the Heart and Vascular Center. Thank you, Kelly. Good morning, everyone. It is an absolute delight uh, for me to uh, introduce today's speaker, Dr. Joshua Beckman. Uh, Dr. Beckman is currently a professor of medicine and director of the vascular medicine section uh, at uh, Vanderbilt University. Uh, it's such a pleasure for me because he's a very close friend and colleague. Um, just some background uh, for Josh, he uh, got his uh, bachelor's degree at the University of Pennsylvania in the area of American political history then decided maybe that's not the way to go and uh, went to med school at NYU, did his uh, medical residency at Columbia Presbyterian, where then he stayed on initially to do uh, his fellowship in cardiovascular medicine. But we, uh, as many of you know, I was at Brigham and Women's Hospital. We were able to entice him to complete his cardiovascular medicine fellowship at Brigham and Women's and then uh, joined me in doing a fellowship training program and then becoming part of the faculty in the uh, vascular medicine uh, section. Uh, Josh has been uh, very active in this and other areas on a national basis. Uh, he uh, was president of the Society for Vascular Medicine. Uh, he chaired the American Heart Association Council on Peripheral Vascular Disease. And importantly, he is currently a member of the parent task force for the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology uh, Clinical Practice Guidelines. Uh, and uh, even prior to that, he was very engaged in that committee and served on the writing committee of the perioperative guidelines. So it's quite apropos that he will be speaking to us today on risk assessment of the cardiac patient in non-cardiac surgery. Josh, welcome. I haven't done anything yet. You don't have to clap. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me, Mark. Thanks very much. Um, I love this topic. I love this topic because um, it annoys everybody. Uh, this is something that we all have to do routinely. Uh, and the surgeon wants you to say that <laughs> it's totally fine, there's nothing to worry about, and if there's a problem, it's your fault, not my fault. And so we all want to, everybody wants to make sure that everything goes perfectly well, um, and it's, it's never really that simple, but it turns out it's actually not that difficult either, and I'm, I'm not trying to be tricky about it. So I'm just going to start off with one of those simple things. Here's a case. Here's a 74-year-old woman who presents for risk assessment prior to a planned right carotid endarterectomy. She has no cardiac history to report. 
little exercise tolerance because of her sedentary behavior and she has degenerative joint disease. She has no complaints of any chest pain or shortness of breath or edema. Her exam is unremarkable. Uh, she has the carotid brewery, as you would expect. The carotid ultrasound shows a, a really high-velocity lesion, um, so it's reasonable in an asymptomatic patient to get the surgery. I'm not going to talk about that part today. Um, so the question is, does she even need a perioperative evaluation? <clears throat> and I just want to start with one question for the audience, because I want to see what the bias in the room is. And just raise your hand for the one that you th I'm going to read them. And you're just going to tell me what you would do with this person. Who would obtain an exercise stress test? Nobody. Who would, who would refer this patient for a pharmacological nuclear study or a, or a stress echo or something like that? Nobody. Who would add a beta block? By the way, I'm just going to assume that the last answer is the one that you're all voting for if you don't raise your hands. <laughs> who would add a beta blocker and send the patient to surgery? Nobody. Uh, who would write, avoid hypotension and blood loss in your note and send along? Yeah. There's, there's a lot. Actually, there's, I know this happens a lot more than people admit. And by the way, the anesthesiologists like nothing more than to be told to avoid life-threatening conditions. Uh, and then who would send along without further evaluation and have your colleague follow up in the hospital? Okay, so everybody's a chicken. Nobody raises their hands. All right, so let's work backwards. So... Most of the time when you talk, when we do these kinds of talks, we talk about the patient and the risk factors for the patient and the ways to modify the patient's risks and outcomes. I'm going to work backwards. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is whether or not there are actually any therapies that reduce perioperative cardiovascular events. And if not, why are we even, ha even having this conversation? That's a, and that's going to be a good one for a minute there. What does the case look like that I really need to get some help on um, what am I supposed to do once I've sent the patient into the wild blue yonder of the operating suite? And uh, where is risk stratification going in the future? So there have been a series of, of trials looking at different therapies to see if we could modify the risk associated with surgery. And the answer is <laughs> these have all failed. There is no drug, not one drug, that we can apply in advance that has any demonstrated benefit in modifying the outcome. The one that we used to talk about the most was the beta blo were beta blockers. Uh, I could go through the entire set of beta blocker data. I will not. This is the one big trial that basically decided the outcome. It's the POISE trial. It had 8,300 patients. They were randomized uh, to metoprolol. Um, they got, first, they got 100 milligrams right before surgery, 100 milligrams within six hours of the surgery, 200 milligrams the next morning, and 200 milligrams daily thereafter. And if you take a look at the outcomes, a lot of it is what is expected. So actually, I'm just going to use this pointer. The primary composite was actually beneficial for beta blockers, uh, mostly because of a reduction in non-fatal MI. Total mortality, however, went up. And this really freaked people out. Uh, and even worse, stroke doubled. Um, and there was some good explanations for that. Um, there was a 50% increase in significant hypotension, uh, and that was actually associated with the number of deaths. That was sort of the link. And then uh, significant bradycardia occurred, and there was some relationship there to atrial uh, fibrillation and stroke. So this was basically the end of beta blockers in our routine therapy. Uh, I will make the case, however, that this could be, and I'm being recorded, so I will choose my words carefully, um, a poor choice of therapeutic uh, a poor therapeutic initiative. 
How many people in this room, and you're all docs, how many people in this room would give a beta blocker naive patient 200 milligrams of long-acting oral beta blockers within six hours of surgery? Right. So I, so when I was actually on this perioperative guidelines writing committee, and they just wanted to say that beta blockers were not something that should be used. And I said, ah, you know, I would actually say that we titrate beta blockers for heart failure and blood hypertension and atrial fibrillation and even migraines. Why does it make sense to give someone like a huge dose of a beta blocker in the minute you're going to make them uh, make them uh, go through a series of things where their blood pressure is going to change and their pain level is going to change, and just, there's no stability in the, po in the perioperative setting. The last thing you want to do is give someone a once-a-day long-acting drug so that you can't change the circumstances as they, as they occur. And I'll tell you, there was a huge fight about beta blockers in the, in the literature and in the community. And it turns out it's probably <laughs> really unimportant. Um, so of the 10,500 people who were studied uh, in all the beta blocker trials, we probably prevented 75 non-fatal MIs, caused 19 strokes, and increased the number of deaths up by about 35. Now, every person is important. Uh, I'm not trying to minimize adverse outcomes to anybody, but if this is the number of events we're talking about, it's really small. It's really small. And so even if you like beta blockers or you don't like beta blockers, it's not worth getting all upset about. Um, I will make the case um, that there were some other backup therapies that people were using to be like beta blockers. One of them was clonidine, essentially acting alpha agonist. Which causes, uh, which slows your heart rate down and looks like a beta blocker. Um, if you take a look at this figure in the POISE 2 trial of 10,000 patients, we can just take a look at the bottom here. These are two superimposed lines. So giving clonidine by a patch didn't make a difference. The other part of this 2 by 2 factorial uh, trial was aspirin. This is what I thought was one of the more useful parts uh, in this trial. Uh, giving or holding aspirin did not make a difference. So one caveat, patients with stents were not included here, okay? So if you have a coronary stent, I would try not to stop the aspirin. But there was an increase in risk in bleeding out to the first seven or eight days. There was no offsetting benefit for being on an aspirin. Uh, and so um, you don't have to sweat this one either. If the surgeon says, I'd like to hold the aspirin, fine. If the surgeon says, I can operate on aspirin, fine. And you don't have, you could just be really accommodating because it doesn't matter. And I just want to make it clear that this goes through all the different strata of patients who were studied, right? So whether we're taking a look at people who were on aspirin before or who were not made no difference. Whether we're talking about vascular or non-vascular surgery made no difference. Whether we stratify them by risk using the revised cardiac risk index made no difference. And whether they had a previous history of vascular disease made no difference. I think aspirin is among the more useless drugs that we give routinely. That's my own personal take on aspirin. Uh, and if we could find a substitute, I would use it, uh, I would use it uh, all the time. But here's the case where aspirin doesn't make a big deal. Now, revascularization is something that is a really popular therapy for people that do revascularization. Um, <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that there's any benefit to doing anything to stable patients. Uh, and so in this study of uh, 510 patients where everybody had proved coronary disease by catheterization, they randomized them to revask or no revask. 
These were all vascular surgery patients getting either a AAA repair or infrequent bypass. They chose vascular surgery for two reasons. One, a much greater background prevalence of coronary disease, and two, a pretty predictable and relatively high rate of adverse cardiovascular events after surgery, so they could do this study with 500 people and not 2,000 people. Um, but the first thing I'll say is of the 206, uh, 255 patients who were told to get cardiac revascularization before they went to their vascular surgery, 17 of them died of their vascular surgery problem. Waiting is not without a cost. Next, I'll tell you that there was no difference in the rates of perioperative MI, perioperative death after 30 days, or three-year mortality. So, and this is in the era of bare metal stents, um, and this, this to me is the study that will never be done again. No one will ever be able to do this kind of study again. And it just sort of fits with a lot of the data that we got subsequently, like the COURAGE trial, showing that intervention um, in stable patients doesn't reduce MI or death over the course of seven years. Or for those of you that are on Twitter all the time, the ORBITA trial, which has been discussed ad nauseum about how PCI may not um, improve symptoms. There are obviously some problems with ORBITA. Half the patients had no symptoms by the time they went to intervention. But it's single-vessel PCI never saved anybody's life in almost any setting outside of an acute coronary syndrome or STEMI. Um, so revascularization in general doesn't help people. There is one caveat to what I told you. The only place oh, – actually, I'll just make one other point about revascularization. We all want to get patients to, be, to have a bare metal stent because we think we don't have to give them dual antiplatelet therapy for as long. So maybe we could stent them now and like operate two or four weeks later because we could stop the uh, second agent. In the Massachusetts experience, um, if you take a look at all the adults who are undergoing non-cardiac surgery within one year following PCI, and this is obviously several thousand patients, uh, it turns out that the, the drug-eluting stents did just as well as the bare metal stents at any time point. Uh, and in fact, in the later time points, did better. So this is not a randomized trial. These are doctors figuring out what they should do with individual patients. There's obviously some confounding here. But there is no evidence, actually, that putting in a bare metal stent allows you to sort of skate by with a short period of dual antiplatelet therapy and make surgery safer. The other thing I'll say is that there is one group that we still think of who may derive some benefit from revascularization, coronary revascularization, prior to non-cardiac surgery, and that's the left main patients. So this, this one little thing here has sort of now become a little cottage industry, still driving lots of preoperative testing to see if we can find asymptomatic left main coronary artery disease. Now, why do we, why do we operate on people with, or even put in stents, in patients who have asymptomatic left main coronary artery disease, it's based on, you know, based on my limited math skills, somewhere between 150 and 200 cases that were studied in the late 70s and early 80s, right? We don't typically go after stable coronary disease with a revascularization or surgery in almost any other setting. Left main is the only one that's really left. And so the question I get is, how do you know someone doesn't have left main coronary disease when they have something like knee arthritis and they can't walk around and you can't figure it out? Um, the answer mostly is not. Most people do not have left main coronary disease. 
It's a very small number of the total. So they screened thousands of patients who were getting vascular surgery to find the population they could study, and there were only 48 patients with left main coronary disease in a particularly high-risk group. And I would bet all comers coming to surgery, that number is less than half a percent. Um, but if you are particularly worried and, you, and for some reason you think that's what you're going to find, you can send them for just a regular exercise test. And if they can't walk, they can do arm ergometry. You don't have to get the fancy schmancy tests, which, as I'll discuss, aren't really that good. But left main is the one exception to my rule. Now, other medication exceptions. It does seem like being on a statin is good. Uh, and there's lots of studies where people who were on statins did better than people who were not on statins. There's one randomized trial, which is small. And I'd say they likely work. But this is never going to be tested because, in particular, in the vascular surgery patients, you're going to, put on, you're going to have them on anyway for other reasons. And the one caveat for beta blockers is even though I told you you don't have to start them, do not, do not under any circumstance stop them. Beta blocker withdrawal is associated with a huge sympathetic nervous system overdrive, and that can provoke heart attack and other adverse events. Um, beta blocker withdrawal it can actually be a lethal event. And so make sure the patient, if they're on a beta blocker, they stay on a beta blocker. And there are different IV formulations for many of the different drugs. So someone comes to your office, and you're not sure. You want to know, uh, what do I do now? And so now what we're doing, since there aren't that many drugs you can give, and revascularization is generally a strategy that is not, uh, not routine, why am I even seeing the patient? Cannot provide therapies to mitigate risk. Cannot change the underlying, underlying condition. And my argument now is basically what you're doing is you're trying to find the needle in a haystack. That person who actually has some kind of unstable syndrome. Um, and the person who needs to be treated for their unstable cardiac syndrome before surgery. And these are the four conditions which, as any... Uh, any person who's in this room can tell you it takes about three minutes to figure out. So are they having unstable angina or a heart attack in your office? <laughs> I mean, the only, the only exception to that is progressive angina, and you can ask if they've been having chest pain. Uh, decompensated heart failure. And I don't care how you pick that up, whether it's rouse on exam and elevated jugular venous pressure. They have to sleep on more pillows because they're short of breath. Their legs are swelling more. You should fix decompensated heart failure. Lots of people coming in for a gallbladder operation do not have decompensated heart failure if they're able to come to your office and they're doing fine. Significant arrhythmias, uh, that's not atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation is incredibly common, but if they've had atrial fibrillation for a long time, you don't have to suddenly go bananas about it. Mostly, this is, these are arrhythmias about which you would do something. So it's advanced heart block where you'd put in a pacemaker. It's uh, evidence of lots of PVCs in a low ejection fraction. It's, it's serious things where you consider doing things to the person, like a defibrillator or a pacemaker, or something that suggests that there's been a change in the cardiac condition. The number one arrhythmia that we see is either APCs or atrial fibrillation, depending on the series. And for most of those patients, they don't really need much done. And then severe valvular disease. And this is almost always stenotic disease and not regurgitant disease uh, for two reasons. One, 
regurgitant disease, if it's symptomatic, will, will find itself in the decompensated heart failure box. Two, regurgitant disease does really well with surgery because most anesthetic agents are afterload reducing, and so it's, it's offloading the heart. It's not making it worse. So what we're really talking about now is aortic stenosis and mitral stenosis. Mitral stenosis is that once-a-year case that you may see or your friend has seen. It's just not that common in the United States anymore. Um, aortic stenosis is the one that drives people crazy. And the cutoff value is about one centimeter squared for the size of the orifice. And it's really symptomatic status. So if anyone has symptomatic AS, I would consider fixing that before whatever blank operation you're seeing the patient for. The hard one is when the aortic valve area is thought to be less than a centimeter and the patient says they're asymptomatic. Um, that's one hard scenario. And what I do for that is I put them on a treadmill and I actually see what their functional capacity is and if they can go more, depending on their age, more than a stage of the Bruce Protocol. Um, if a 75-year-old goes four or five minutes on the Bruce Protocol, I'm ecstatic, and they can have any operation they want. Um, if they can't go one minute, that suggests that the valve is doing much more than, than they are admitting to you, and they've accommodated their activity. The other really hard one is a broken hip. Um, patients with broken hips seem to have a lot of aortic valve disease, and that may end up being because they're old, or because the discalcification process that makes your valve have lots of calcium is stealing it from your hip, so you're more likely to break it. I'm telling you, it's <laughs> how many people in this room have seen a patient with a broken hip who also has aortic valve disease, right? I, I, if I, everyone's not raising your hand, you're lying. So what do you do in that case? That case is actually one where you have to go back to being a, a, a person and have a conversation with the patient and their family about palliative care versus open-heart surgery in an, in an octogenarian to fix the hip. Uh, what, I, what I mostly do, honestly, is I assess whether or not the patient has, uh, is compass mentis or not. So if they're not and they're in some kind of nursing facility and this is a palliative procedure, I treat it as a palliative procedure and I will just go ahead and, you know, we'll be there with the patient in case something happens. But I, I'm not going to send that person to open-heart surgery. In the TAVR era, this is changing. And then it becomes even more difficult because you have to decide in advance if you think the patient has symptomatic aortic stenosis. And then you have to figure out from wherever they are, what are your daily activities? What, is your, what are your limitations? And you have to actually talk to them for a while to figure this out. And they, but again, it almost always harkens back to, is the patient alert and aware enough that they will understand the ramifications of having open heart surgery and being out of commission for at least one to two months after a big open heart surgery? Or with TAVR, you know, can they understand that they're going to be in this room for four to six hours and have this big procedure while they are now more commonly awake, although they still can be intubated and sedated? Um, it's, it's a conversation. There's no right answer. It's individualized. That's the one that's really difficult to deal with, and you want to get the patient and their family involved. Despite everything I told you, there are no good drugs, and revascularization doesn't work. Outcomes are getting much better. And over the course of the first decade um, of this century, uh, the rates of adverse events in non-cardiac surgery, these are the bottom two lines, AAA mortality rates dropped from 4.5% down to 2.8%, and carotid endarterectomy still has this stochastic, you know, um, out of the blue rate of death of about 1%. It's going to be almost impossible to improve upon those results. 
These, the industry standard for any medication to see if it works and improves outcome is about 20%. You want to reduce whatever the adverse event that you are tracking is by 20%. All, cardi all cardiovascular trials now have a, a group event because there aren't enough individual events in any one of these endpoints. Here, for mortality, I don't really see how you improve upon 2.8%. Whatever therapy you would have would drop it by 20% and get you down to 2.5% or 2.4%. It becomes almost impossible to recruit enough people to find a difference. Um, despite that, uh, Nat Smilowitz uh, and uh, his group at NYU showed us that people who are getting surgery now in hospital have a way worse risk factor burden. The top line is hypertension, there's also dyslipidemia, there's the rates of obesity and diabetes, and they are all going up. There's two reasons for this. One, there's a lot more outpatient surgery, so we are cherry-picking the healthiest people to have surgery on the outside. But I'm guaranteeing you there's no outpatient AAA surgery and there's no out outpatient carotid endarterectomy. And so in a background, the results that I showed you are actually even more impressive because the remainder of people who are in the hospital are older, sicker, with more cardiovascular risk factors. And despite a sicker population, outcomes are still getting better. And what this tells us is that there's a whole variety of things that are important. And at the end, I'll give you the one that I think is most important. But primarily, it's having, it's having people participate in the care and be around. Um, when I'm in the office and I want to figure out if someone needs to have anything done, and I'm not sure, I walk them on the stairs. Where I work, there's uh, about three stairways within, within about, 10, uh, about 25 yards in almost every direction. And I bring them to the stairway and I, might, I make them walk two flights. And as they're walking two flights, I make them talk to me about their children or grandchildren. If they can get up two flights of stairs and talk to me about their children or grandchildren, they don't need anything else. You're done. That's it. That is the equivalent of almost two stages of the Bruce. Uh, and you can see here in a study of 600 consecutive people who could climb two flights of stairs or walk four blocks on flat ground. I don't have time to walk four blocks on flat ground. Um, it halves the rate of all cardiovascular events down from 10 to 5%. This is not death. This is every complication. And this, is, this was done in the 90s. And so I guarantee you event rates would be even half of this now. So two flights of stairs and you're finished. I don't like stress testing, uh, nuclear stress testing, or stress echo, because they're too sensitive. In older patients, it's really common to have coronary disease. And so this is the nuclear vasodilator study, and there's a million varieties. Regadenosine is the one that's around now the most. And if you have a normal study, your chances of having an adverse event are near zero. But we don't do studies to find the negative patients. We do studies to find the positive studies so we can intervene in advance. And the positive predictive value of a nuclear vasodilator study or a dobutamine echo are horrendous. They're way worse than a coin flip. They're somewhere in the 10 to 20% range, and they do not tell you what to do. The reason is, and in, this is in contrast to why we do studies in almost every other circumstance, this these studies are more likely to pick up unimportant branch vessel disease. So when we do regular stress testing, you need to have a, a significant amount of atherosclerosis to change your EKG during stress. When you do a nuclear vasodilator study, 
we are now incorporating a lot of people who have MIPSI-PIPSI cardiac disease into the sick group, which means that the test is not really that predictive anymore. And so I never know what to do with these studies. I am encouraged that stable patients do not derive benefit from being revascularized. And so I am only doing these studies now to find left main coronary disease if I do them. And so for me, this is a yes, no. Is this, is this a left main equivalent or not? And if it's not, you know, good luck, go to surgery, I'll see you later. What I do also in the office, if I, don't, if I can't bring someone to the stairs, is that there are now uh, several pretty well-validated risk calculators, all of which are available online, all of which take about three minutes to fill out. Uh, the RCRI, I think, is actually too blunt an instrument now. It was created in the 90s by Tom Lee. Um, I don't use that one anymore because it's too simple. Uh, the American College of Surgeons has a couple of different calculators, and they have more than a million patients' worth of data upon which they base the risk, and they give you more than just the cardiac risk. And I'll show you one at the end, what, it, what the printout looks like. Uh, there's also the Gupta Cardiac Risk Calculator. That's also a pretty well-validated one. It doesn't matter which one you use, and it's not going to be exactly right if it's 1%, 1.2%, it's, but it's, it's, pretty, it's close enough so that you know to tell the patient, oh, this is, like a, this is a really high-risk surgery or this is a, your risk is totally acceptable. And by the way, that should be the phrase you use all the time. Your risk is acceptable. Do not say you are cleared. That gives everybody the impression that there is no risk here. Do not worry about it. And that's never the case. Now, the two areas of real disagreement in this field are biomarker risk assessment, usually before the surgery, and then post-operative surveillance. What are we supposed to do? So I want to step back, and I want to give everybody just a bit of credit, because if someone has a heart attack after surgery, it could be a catastrophic event. So this comes from the Cleveland Clinic experience. And you can see here that if they had any kind of, of heart attack, that the rates of death by 30 days are already really high, and by one year, a quarter of the patients are dead. If they had a, an ST segment elevation MI, those numbers are basically double. So we all want to do everything possible to avoid a heart attack after surgery. So I understand the background fear. Um, but I think the, this graph, which is this figure, which is made to scare the bejesus out of everybody, needs to be put into a better context. So the first thing I want to do is I want to say that it's actually true I do read the Annals of Internal Medicine. Uh, and so one of the things I really liked were these rules that, a, that the former editor of the Annals of Internal Medicine put out about any kind of testing. Uh, and I think the most important question you want to ask about any test is the first bullet. Will the test result change the care of my patient? I don't do things just to see. That doesn't help me. I want to get a test that's going to, because I think I'm at a fork, and I will go in one direction or the other on the basis of my test. So the biggest one that we talk about all the time now is post-operative troponin. This troponin now seems to be measured in almost clinic, any clinical situation, ranging from the flu, and I just did the consult service, and it was, it was drawn on patients with the flu, to obvious myocardial infarction and everything in between. 
Uh, and I will say that having a positive troponin is bad. Uh, this is a single, large single center study of 2,300 patients. And if your troponin, this one is troponin I, it doesn't matter which one they use, was negative, your rates of death around the time of surgery were very, very low. And if your troponin was elevated to not a very high level, your death rate could be as high as 15 to 20%. So it does tell you who is at a higher risk of death. Um, and in this same thing, everybody measures troponin at the same time. It's either day zero, one, two, and three, or days one, two, and three after the operation. We can see here that most of the troponins come in in the, in the first day, maybe some in the second. But here's the case I want to make that troponin is not doing what you think it does. So we draw troponins because we wonder if someone's having a heart attack, right? That was the original intended purpose. So here, in this study of 2,300 patients, 315 of them had a positive troponin. Four were having a myocardial infarction. And there were about 50 deaths. So what does this tell me? This tells me that the heart gets annoyed by having surgery. This tells me that a lot of people have underlying coronary disease that is stable, and because of some hemodynamic perturbation, they may have subendocardial ischemia. But this is not a plaque rupture event. This is not a plaque rupture event for which you should send people to the cath lab. This is an underlying hemodynamic event for which you should, you should fix the underlying hemodynamics. The one of the strongest predictors for having a positive troponin is having either very low blood pressure or very high blood pressure in the operating room. So again, this is the largest study that took a look at this. This is the vision trial. This had uh, more than 10,000 patients. Troponins were measured in the first few days. And again, the same kind of stratification. If you had a, a negative troponin here at the bottom, your death rate was near zero, and it ranged up to a troponin T greater than 0 0.3, you had a 15% death rate by 30 days. It is clearly stratifying the risk of death. And again, you would think that that would be a really good thing, but the problem is, this is what people died from. So in this study of the, more, of the nearly 300 people who died, more died of non-vascular problems than cardiovascular problems. The hazard ratio increased the same for both sets of problems. So whether it was cardiovascular mortality or non-vascular mortality, the hazard ratios go up as the levels go up. And cardiovascular mortality included bleeding to death, pulmonary embolism, and unknown. So if you got, if you got rid of those, non-vascular mortality would be something like two to one. What is the normal response for most physicians when they see a positive troponin? They want to treat it like it's a heart attack because that's what this was originally intended for. The last thing I want to do right after surgery is give someone antiplatelet therapy and anticoagulation and consider sending them to the cath lab, right? And when I, most of the deaths are really sepsis or hemorrhage. God forbid I anticoagulate someone who is bleeding. It's not helping. Um, and again, the, what I'll, here's the POISE trial, which was the one with beta blockers before 8,300 people. Uh, and you can see here the rates of adverse cardiac events. In this study of 8,300 people, 
Only 14 of them got revascularized after surgery. The big sea change in this field is that the background rate of heart attack after operation has dropped to levels that are so low, it's almost unimportant. It just doesn't happen. And I just want to draw again the important difference between a type 1, which is a plaque rupture MI that we all think about when we train, where people come in with EKG changes and you want to do some kind of intervention, versus type 2, which is a hemodynamic shift, a big bleed, low blood pressure, um, where you cannot perfuse the heart and you have a troponin elevation. This, this figure is not bad. This is the one that I think really describes the difference between type 1 and type 2 the best. <laughs> type 1 is when you have to snake the drain because it's blocked. Type 2 is when you don't have enough fluid in the tank and you can't get enough perfusion. That's how you should remember the difference in MI. <laughs> it's a hemodynamic fix that we worry about. I don't know if you can see those numbers, but this is the Cleveland Clinic experience over the course of nine years where they did 400,000 operations through the extended campuses of, uh, of the Cleveland Clinic. 5.8% of the people had a positive troponin, and the only thing I'll point out here is 0.006% of them ended up going to the cath lab for revascularization. I don't think it's important to do anything for 0.006% of the population. There's nothing you can do outside of take care of the black swan events that are, these, that are now heart attacks. And that's really been the sea change in this whole field. The number of heart-related events causing, adverse causing major adverse events is really very small. Finally, the thing I'll point out is that even in the longer term, troponin is not predicting heart deaths. So this is, uh, oh, sorry, this is employees just making the same point that of the people, of, you needed to screen almost 8,000 people to do five cats after operation. Um, one of the things I will say is that readmission after a post-operative MI is incredibly high. And so MI is a bad event when it occurs, and people come back in both for cardiac problems and non-cardiac problems. It is, a, it is as much an identification of a high-risk patient as it is anything else. The one-year mortality after troponin is, eleva is significantly elevated. Obviously, a lot of it happens in the first 30 days, but it continues on when you have elevated levels of troponin. But you need to know what the patients are dying from to see whether or not it's even worthwhile up front to draw this test. And so in this study of about 3,500 patients, of the deaths, okay, and you can count up here, it's about, uh, I'd say it's about 500, there were 11, there were, over the course of a year, about 20 people who died of a heart-related event. 20 out of the 500. What was the much more common cause of death? There was cerebrovascular or, or uh, brain injury events. Malignancy was really high. Infection was really high. Other was really high. Unknown was really high. Of all the things on this, on this chart, cardiac-related mortality was the least important. And by the way, it's not myocardial infarction. It's cardiac arrest and heart failure. So measuring troponin is not, is not going to give you the answer. And most people would like, I'm sorry, most people would like postoperative troponin to be a weather vane, give you direction. But it doesn't. 
It's a thermometer. It tells you which patients are hot. But it doesn't tell you what to do. And if you can't tell that the person has had a pulmonary embolism, is septic, or having a hemorrhage event, I'm not quite sure what we're doing in the first place. All right. The next set of surveillance that people are talking about is BNP before an operation. Is it high or is it low? Um, here's, uh, here's one of the two major meta-analyses in this field. And it seems like having a high level predicts adverse events. So people measure BNPs, and then nobody knows what to do with them. There is no treatment plan. And I have had, you know, in medical societies, I've had debates about whether or not you should do this. And the answer is always, well, if someone's in frank heart failure, you want to treat them. And I said, how come you couldn't tell they were in frank heart failure without this blood test? Don't you talk to them and listen to them? That always makes them very annoyed. <laughs> um, I said, I think the really difficult ones are the people that have elevated BNPs but are not in frank heart failure. So this literature is rife with patients who need urgent surgery or emergency surgery, and those people are going to be sicker no matter what happens. There really is no large data set of looking at people who have you know, if your normal BNP is up to 100 and you have a level of 200, which seems really high but is actually incredibly common in patient populations above 55, nobody knows what to do there. You can make the argument you should give them a dose of a diuretic beforehand or be really, uh, one of the hot things in anesthesia now is goal-directed goal -directed, um, uh, hydration therapies to limit the amount of fluid that people get. But this is at the very earliest stage, and nobody knows what to do with BNP. The other point I'll make here is that uh, in this series of, 20, of uh, 2,000 patients, only 15 of them had cardiac deaths. So even though BNP seemed to be a great predictor for all the different adverse events, MI, death, PE, we're talking about mipsy-pipsy numbers. It's really small. And so it makes it, again, hard to understand why, with this data that is mostly in urgent patients, whether it's reasonable to order a BNP beforehand in someone who's truly asymptomatic. Here is what I think one of the bigger things that has happened over time. This is a really interesting study published in the New England Journal that used the American College of Surgery's National Surgery Quality Improvement Program data. And they looked at about 85,000 surgeries. And what they wanted to find out is, is what separates good hospitals out from bad hospitals? So the first thing I'll point out is that the complication rate amongst the five quintiles of hospitals in the United States that were used here was no different. Everybody makes mistakes. Even though that sounds like it shouldn't, I shouldn't be saying it this way, we're people. We all make mistakes. Complications happen all the time. The second one is not just all complications, it's major complications. Things that have the possibility of leading to someone's mortality, leading to someone's demise. And again, across the five quintiles, there is no difference. What is it that separates out the really good hospitals from the really bad hospitals? It is the ability to rescue someone after a major complication. It is the participation of more than one person in the perioperative setting. 
It is the ability to find something early after a major complication and rescue it rather than find it too late and have it lead to someone's death. It's being a doctor. And so this is the answer to your question. What am I supposed to do after I, sense, I say someone is an acceptable risk for an operation? You need to make sure that someone looks at the patient from a medical perspective after the surgery. We don't send them into the black box and hope to see them a month later. Because it's rescue. Rescue is the key to incredible outcomes. This is what the, the NISQIP calculator looks like. And if those of you don't have uh, binoculars to be able to see these small letters, uh, some of the things that are included in uh, this is ca all cardiac complications for a CEA patient, less than 1%. But it gives you things like urinary tract infection, venous thromboembolism, chances of recurrence, chances of a prolonged stay on a ventilator. And it's a nice way you can actually tell the patients what their general risks are across the strata of adverse events that occur after surgery. And this is based on more than a million patients' worth of data. I do think the future is biomarker testing. Why? Because the one thing all hospitals would like to, would like to avoid is using space and time for preoperative clinics. If they could just draw a blood test and by those parameters show that the patient is at acceptable risk, with that and a phone call, it would save time and money. Probably about one out of five patients getting surgery would have a positive biomarker. But that would mean 80% of the people wouldn't even need to be seen. They would just go to the operating room. There are more medications in clinical trials right now to see if that it will reduce adverse events. The biggest one now is a two-by-two two factorial trial of <laughs> dabigatran and omeprazole. Yes, in troponin-positive people, they want to give an oral anticoagulant. No, I don't understand why. Um, and then... I do think that there's progress being made in a variety of other events like infection, uh, volume loading, venous thromboembolism, and bleeding management. So in summary, preoperative assessment in the cardiovascular space should now focus basically on current unstable disease. Testing and intervention should be rare and reserved for the unstable or possibly unstable. A team approach with multiple eyes and algorithmic care can reduce postoperative length of stay and adverse outcomes. And antiplatelet and anticoagulation therapies require a much larger view. Most of the time, you can discontinue people. Um, but every now and again, if you need some help, I'm sure Dr. Kruven will be happy to have your patients referred to cardiology. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Josh. That was uh, just outstanding. If I can just ask uh, the first question, and we'll open it up. There's been a sea change in how we think about uh, preoperative risk assessment in patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery in the past two decades. And obviously, uh, the pendulum has swung way to one side, saying that we don't really have to do so much. Have you at Vanderbilt uh, developed any particular system of care, or would you recommend a system of care to how surgeons can start thinking about referring their patients that would both, both improve uh, efficiency and still end up with good quality outcomes? Yeah, that's a great question. So the answer at Vanderbilt is no, I haven't done that much. One, I've just gotten there. Two, they already had a pretty advanced system. Uh, 
when I worked with you in Boston, I worked very closely with the, uh, uh, with the pre, um, pre-surgical testing group. We actually developed a beta blocker program back closer to the year 2000. And I helped them figure out patients that were high risk that needed more attention and should be referred for a consultation. At Vanderbilt, they actually do not have in the building preoperative risk assessment by, radio, by anesthesiologists. They do it all by phone. They have a pilot program where they're measuring troponin. You know, they look to see if anybody's had a troponin within 30 days of an operation, and they scout out every one of those people to see what the event was. Um, but they do this all by phone, and, they're, and the key for the anesthesiologist is that they decided that for whoever will let them, they will be the eyes not only before the surgery and in the surgery, but they have post-surgical teams that run around and help to do pain management and fluid management. Pain management turns out to be a much bigger topic um, about which I am not an expert because a lot of these patients are getting pain through modalities that I can't give, whether it's, um, sub- whether it's um, epidural lines uh, uh, or other methods. And so they, the better management of narcotics after surgery mobilizes people much more quickly, gets them up, decreases other adverse events, avoids volume overload because narcotics cause vasodilation, and so you tend to pump in fluid to keep the blood pressure normal. Uh, And so they've decided to be part of the team that manages people after. I think the real key is you have to find a group of people that care about these outcomes and are willing to spend the extra time to see the patients before, during, and after the the, the surgery. That's the key. Dr. Rigby. Yes, sir. That was a great talk. I really, really appreciate it. My, My thought was... And your, your, the post-operative troponin data was very compelling. Yeah. And I was thinking about what drives referrals to cardiology uh, <laughs> and should the bottleneck or filtration or nodal point be the cardiology referral or should it be the surgeon not making the referral when the patient has a, a mild bump in their troponin post-op? So in the standard practice, when someone asks, asks a really good question, it's to change the topic. Um, so I'll give you the, I'm going to step back here for a second. The use of postoperative troponin is really important in hospitals with inadequate resources. And one of the reasons that hospitals with inadequate resources use troponin is that it's a simple screen to figure out when they should get another doctor to pay attention. So I know this sounds, I'm telling you this is what it is, particularly in other, in, uh, other countries with much smaller healthcare resources than ours. Uh, and so they use it as a screen because it does identify quite exquisitely who's at high risk. The problem, in my opinion, in the United States is that we don't have a manpower shortage. We have lots of people around, and that we have been trained that a troponin is a heart problem. We have not been trained that, first of all, did everybody know what a type 2 myocardial infarction is before I talked about it? Okay, so the universal definition of MI changed about five years ago. And I don't think there's been a real appreciation yet that a hemodynamic event is really the cause of almost all of these elevations. So if you want to use it as a quick and dirty screen for everybody, okay. That's what it's being used for mostly. Um, but I think that when you have people who are paying attention and you can ask the patient if they've had chest pain or shortness of breath or an EKG change, those are the people you have to pay attention to. Um, I don't think it should be done in everybody. And so 
if, you know, and if it's a low-risk surgery and nobody tends to see the patients and the surgeon gets it as their sort of harbinger of doom, great. But most of the time, I, I wouldn't measure it. Thank you, John. Again, that was just terrific. Um, there has been some data that came out of the Brigham preoperative frailty assessment yeah. um, that shows that with that, you can identify some very high-risk patients who actually have increased mortality. Can you comment on the role of that? Yeah, no, I think frailty is an incredibly hot area now. Uh, I think we're at the... And I, that data is very clear, and it, I don't think it should, should surprise anybody that when you're frail, you're not going to do well with a major intervention like being hit by a truck or getting surgery. The, de the problem is the definition of frail, right? I think, you, you know, some people would want to use something like sarcopenia, so how much muscle mass you have. And there are a variety of indicators. I think the field is only now coming to grips with the idea that they need to figure out the measures they need so they can give a score. And then once you have a score, then you can start to make interventions on that basis and decisions. But I agree with you. Yeah. Which is a very good measure. I think I agree. I don't think the whole field uses Rockwood. Um, and I, I think that this has been one of those places at our place where the geriatricians are taking the lead. Oh, there you go. See? I didn't even know that. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's incredibly important as people begin to live longer and longer it has not, as you know, been incorporated into the guidelines yet because we didn't know which measure to use and what to do about the score. But it's coming. So there was a really interesting talk about the fact that doing these tests before an operation doesn't lead to something you can do before the operation. But also you showed data that it does suggest who's, who's going to have trouble after the operation. Has anybody set up a system where you use that type of testing to decide what kind of unit they go to post-operatively? Maybe a unit with more... So let's separate out being a doctor versus having evidence-based guidelines. Yeah, I mean, I'm a doctor all the time. Most of the situations I see patients don't have rules, right? They, patients are not the textbook. So if someone wanted to use it that way, I think that would make a lot of sense. That said, I would study your first 1,000 patients in a row and see whether or not it made a difference in outcomes based on expected versus uh, real outcomes that occurred. Uh, I'm worried. I'll give you so. <laughs> When I have conversations about this, the assumption is that a negative test or a positive, excuse me, a positive test will always make the physician do the right thing. But I think that this is a two-tailed question, and it is just as likely that we will do the wrong thing. So I don't know if I give someone who has a BNP of 200, and I give them a slug of Lasix 40 milligrams, and they pee out three liters because they've never seen Lasix before, and then I send them to the operating room, and some small percentage of them have hypokalemia if I'm doing them a favor. So I don't think it's unreasonable to consider biomarker testing. I think it's equally important to consider that you will make the wrong decision based on a test because nobody knows what to do with that test because it hasn't been evaluated. Well, Josh, oh, I, I so is there any idea, um, uh, have you looked at uh, your own institution or your prior institutions, whether what, what does an elevated troponin actually trigger uh, following up this? Because there's one thing to say about guidelines, but there's, there's reality, too. And I would predict that in certain parts of the country or certain, even up here, um, there might be very... Uh, a positive troponin might just trigger the whole 
cardiac shooting match? So, yes. So I'll say in, our, in my prior institution, where Mark and I were about a third of the consult service, and everybody, this, there was a small group of us who almost all of us saw eye to eye on this issue. What it did was trigger an eye roll and like subendocardial ischemia cumulator. Um, but in my new institution, the practice is way more variable because the consult service is way more variable. And there are some patients, some docs, small number, who send the patients to the cath lab. Um, that's declining over time because I make us think about it. Um, but it's, it's not uncommon that a positive troponin triggers acute cardiac care, which is the wrong thing to do for the vast majority of patients. So I think troponin is the perfect answer to what you asked me about preoperative testing. It is equally likely to trigger the wrong response as it is the right response until we know, until we can demonstrate that doing something has a benefit. Josh, thank you so much for visiting Dartmouth Hitchcock and for an outstanding Thank you for having me.